welcome back to the TLDR podcast. I'm Jack Kelly and I'm joined by Zach Michaelis. Hello. And Rory Taylor. Hello. How are you both doing? Good. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. yeah very good. Yeah. I like you looked at each other to consult yeah. as to how you were doing. Um, welcome back to the TLDR UK podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be running through some new election polling data um, that breaks down some interesting elements of who's voting for which parties, what trends there are. And specifically, we're looking at the difference between older and younger voters in the UK and how that differs from the rest of the world. Before we get into that, before we discuss our underreported stories and before we get the world leader leaderboard, just one more reminder that our newspaper, Too Long, is available at a reduced price right now. That's the newspaper that we made at the end of last year, reviewing everything that happened in 2023, plus some predictions for 2024. As I told you last week, we intentionally produced a handful too many in order to have some spare copies um, for returns, for dealing with issues, that kind of thing. Anyway, we have these copies now available for sale um, because we didn't end up needing them and we don't want a bunch of newspapers to go unsold. So if you'd like a copy at the reduced price of $5.99, that's down from $9.99 originally. Or if you'd like a digital copy, which is only available for the first time now for $3.99, then you want to head over to our store. Both are only available for a limited time, so we won't be mentioning it that many more times, I promise. Let's get into the show properly. Um, and Zach, let's start with your underreported story of the week. So my underreported story is something we covered over on TLDR UK, and it is the new Northern Ireland sort of uh, deal that's returned to power sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we don't really the, the details aren't why I think it's underreported. I, the details are to do with basically sort of like how the checks on goods going from Great Britain through Northern Ireland that aren't going on to the Republic of Ireland how many checks are placed on on those sort of goods, if you can call them exports, and if they count as exports because they're going between GBN and I, but what, whatever. It's about reducing those checks to make the whole Windsor framework more palatable to unionists mm-hmm. who have been sort of boycotting government in Northern Ireland. And because of how power sharing works, that means that the Northern Irish Assembly has basically been collapsed um, for the best part of 18 months. Something like that. I think it's like two years now. Two years yeah. now, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's not, not unusual in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's about 40% of the time since since 1997, since it was set up, um, the assembly has been collapsed. Um, but I think it's it's underreported because we just don't pay enough attention to, to Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that especially in like British political discourse, we really underestimate like how, um, it's, it sounds melodramatic, I'm not saying it's likely per se, but it's there's a non-zero, non-trivial chance for happening, let's say in like the next like couple of decades, um, of Northern Ireland eventually leaving the UK. I mean, you now have like a, a nationalist um, first minister mm-hmm. um, in, is it Michelle O'Donnell? O'Neill. O'Neill yeah. um, from Sinn Féin. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of this deal, she said that, I think she said a reuni- reunited Ireland is a generation away or something yeah. like wow. that. Um, and I mean, the fact that that wasn't making headlines in the UK, you know, mm. that the, basically the idea of part of the UK breaking away, uh, like a fundamental change to the, like the union hmm. um, is quite telling, I think. And we like in, in the UK, and this is to our detriment, we don't pay enough attention to Northern Ireland. I think it's amazing quite how fragile the union looks. And we often un- overlook this, especially when you consider that like, let's just say like two decades ago, the idea of any part of the union leaving yeah. would have been utterly unthinkable. And now you'd struggle to find someone who doesn't think that it's that a part of the union leaving is possible. Hmm. Um, 
So yeah, I, I think it's it's big news, and it probably should have got more attention because of its like constitutional implications for the union. It'll be huge. It'll be and huge. the amount of attention yeah. that Scottish independence receives as a concept. Yeah. Video on it coming out later this week. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that Northern Ireland is often overlooked in the same regard. Yeah, I think so. Rory, what's your underreported story this week? So mine is this um, developing political crisis that's happening in Senegal at the moment. There's big protests there after the president um, postponed the presidential election that was meant to happen on the 25th of February. He's postponed it kind of indefinitely, hasn't set a new date yet. Um, amid this uh, dispute over like the approval and the, or the rejection of certain presidential candidates. Um, so for reference, Senegal is is usually kind of considered one of West Africa's or even Africa's most stable democracies. Um, it's had peaceful transfers of power, especially when you think of that region. We've had all those recent coups. Mm. Um, it's it's a bit of a, a an oasis of uh, <laughs> democracy in the region. Sure. Um, but that's really uh, looking like it's being undermined at the moment. So uh, it's the first time a presidential vote has ever been postponed in Senegal's history because it's got a pretty good election history. But anyway... Macky Sall is the name of the president. He's not actually running for re-election. Uh, he served two terms and drew quite a lot of praise last year when he said he wasn't going to run for a third term and kind of bend the constitution to allow him to. Mm. So he got a lot of praise for that. But now he's kind of on the other side of things where, you know, the, your international concern and the opposition kind of condemning his postponement of the election. But it's this slightly difficult situation where there definitely was uh, a lot of dodgy stuff going on with the approval and rejection of certain candidates. So there is a world in which this delay enables the election to be freer and fairer, but also the way people have been reacting to it and the way that the government has been reacting to those protests. You know, there's been tear gas fired at protesters, mobile internet's been restricted. I think a TV station was taken off the air. It, it shows all the signs of a kind of spiraling crisis. Yeah. And this is at a time when that region in particular is, is struggling, um, kind of democratically speaking. Um, so I think that's definitely quite a, quite a big story going on at the moment. Worth paying attention to. Yeah. Definitely underreported. No good African news. No. Not at the moment, it's quite depressing, actually. Yeah. Sorry, mm. that's quite a, yeah, quite so. a tragic note to end what's normally quite a fun bit of the podcast on. Bleak. Yeah. Let's talk about the latest polling data out of the UK. This is YouGov polling, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, that has broken down voting intention by a whole load of metrics and has sparked a bunch of conversations on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, but the one I think we want to pull out specifically is around age and the different age groups and how they're voting, which is a topic that we discussed on the TLDR Global channel today, in fact, yesterday when you're watching, the kind of age and gender gap and all these different things that are impacting how people are voting but in the UK, the age gap is the one that is the most interesting. Yeah. So do you want to break down what the data is telling us? Yeah, so, so basically we, we have this idea that, you know, basically older people, more conservative, young people, less conservative. And this polling kind of bears that out. But the, the really interesting thing is that the Conservative Party are only leading in one age group, and that's the 70 plus age group. Okay. In every single age group below that, so from 18 to 69, Labour beat the Conservatives, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, catastrophic for the Conservative Party. So uh, for reference, at the last election, the, the crossover age where it went from being more Labour to more Tory, that was around 39, 40. Yeah. Now it's 69 to 70 years old. Wow. So since the last election, it's shot up, you know, a few decades. 
And even in that 70 plus age group, the Conservatives are only drawing 43% of the vote, which uh, is down from 67% in 2019. So even in that age group, they're, they're kind of collapsing. Crazy difference. Yeah. Um, Labour, so Labour winning 18 to 69 year olds. And then you've obviously got the other parties kind of Greens, Lib Dems generally do better with younger people as well. Mm. But yeah, it's the Tories that are, have have completely collapsed even between the, you know, the kind of 50 to 69 year olds, which previously have been con more conservative. Yeah. Um, and I think this just is a testament to the the total like, collapse in Tory polls, really. Um, and and it makes their job or just highlights how difficult their job going into the election is going to be because uh, they've really just lost that core part of their base. Um, yeah. Mostly to Labour that if you kind of break, break it down where people are moving to, uh, Labour are the biggest beneficiaries, but also reform um, perform best in that 70 plus group. So 17% of uh, 70 plus say they would vote reform. It's a big, That's taken big a big chunk, chunk from the yeah. Conservatives as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people will be used to it by now. This is another Conservatives doing badly in the polling story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, one of the, I think this is even worse for the Tories than it even looks at face value mm. because. With those like 70 plus voters or just like, let's just say pensioners who are voting Tory um, uh, and, and more so than the voting Labour. There's something I haven't think mentioned on the, by Stephen Bush on the FT podcast the other day is that are those like pensioners, are they actual diehard Tory voters or are they just literally small C conservatives? They're incumbent voters who just vote for whoever's going to keep them safe. They're voting for the Tories because they've kept their pension triple lock safe. They've kept their social housing safe or whatever it is. But if Keir Starmer comes in and keeps the triple lock, and doesn't yeah. do anything significant to the way pensions are treated, will they just shift over to Keir Starmer? Will they just see him as the safe choice? And if that happens, you know, after the, whenever the election happens this year, Tories can be in a truly catastrophic place because mm. once those sort of like, if those older pensioner voters who aren't necessarily Tories, like through and through Tories, they're just sort of incumbency voters. Yeah. If they shift over to Labour, then there's, there's no base left for the Tories. Mm. Um, but the other thing I think is really interesting about this polling is that it's in the British discourse, the Tories often speak about like, oh, well, it's young people. Like, we just don't get young people. Young people are left wing and that's what happens. And yeah. they get right wing as they get older. It's like the very Thatcherite meme. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just not the experience of, uh, it's not the international experience. And it's definitely the experience in Europe, which is probably, like, I'd say, culturally the closest place to the UK. Sure. Um, and in most recent elections, we've seen, you know, across Europe, we've seen a whole load of what are sometimes described as far right or populist right parties swinging up and doing surprisingly well. And one of the reasons they're doing so well is that they're actually really quite popular with young people. So Gert Wilders, for example, mm -hmm. it's the PVV. Yeah. It? yeah. Yeah. Most popular demographic was 18 to 24 year olds. I think I'm right in saying that. Some don't track me, but they're very, very popular with young people, essentially. Uh, Le Pen in the election in whatever it was, 2022, did very, very well with millennials. Not so well with Gen Z, but did quite well with mm -hmm. millennials. Um, and in Poland, um, the quite, really quite far right, I think it's fair to say, I don't think that's partisan, um, Confederation Party, they perform best with basically young men. Mm. Um, and you see this trend basically going across all of Europe is that actually these populist like right-wing parties do perform well, quite well um, with younger people. And the idea that's just sort of like taken as given in British political circles that the Tories just don't win young people, that young people just can't mm. win, it's just, it's completely inconsistent with the European experience. I mean, something that's true in the US, by the way, is that even though young people do vote Democrat, I think it's something like 40% of millennials vote Republican. Yeah. Um, and you, you don't see that split at all in the mm. most recent YouGov polling. I mean, they're sort of outnumbered three to one amongst millennials. And so the idea that the Tories can't win young people, whether that's like internationally true, yeah, it's true in the UK. At least at the moment, they 
don't seem able to win them. Mm. Yeah, but I think Why the... is that that yeah. there are like they should be able to? Clearly, there's, yeah. the right wing can appeal to young people internationally. Does appeal to young people internationally, especially young men, as we highlighted in the video I mentioned earlier. I Why think... is it that? The Tories specifically haven't been able to. Well, I think some of the confusion here arises in the fact that we quite cheaply label like these new like anti-establishment populist parties as like far right or populist right mm. because as we've talked about this podcast so many times, then in many ways they're not very right wing. You know, like a lot of them focus that they're very right wing on cultural issues, sure, but they're actually quite left wing on economic issues, or at least they sort of frame it as like the taking away from the globalists mm. or whatever, and they're giving to the, the proper people. I mean, like. You know, Le Pen is a good example of this. She shifted her campaign to focus on, like, cost of living issues and quite effectively. Um, and I think the issue here is that the Tories are, they were quite good at cultural war stuff, I think it's fair to say, under Boris Johnson maybe. But Sunak is not good at cultural war stuff. Mm. And then on the economic stuff, Sunak is a classic old school, small C fiscal conservative. And that's just not interesting yeah. to, to young people. Um, who just are they, like obviously who wants more austerity like it's just it's just not going to win you any votes yeah um but yeah I, I think the other thing that's worth saying is that there is there is a little bit of evidence in the polling that actually young voters are moving that there is some appetite for a slightly more like reform style um, party because if you break down the the UK polling, in the basically like Gen Z and like early millennial, you know, basically 18 to 30 or whatever mm -hmm. it is, you do see a little bit of a, you see a gender divide, which is something we talked about um, in our previous video, in our video over on TLDR Global, which is, describes the fact that actually in Gen Z, women are becoming significantly more liberal compared mm -hmm. to men who are getting a bit more conservative, at least in their like, um, like how they self-identify. But you do see that actually young men are going slightly more reform than you'd think. Mm. And young women are going green. So green, I think, is the sort mm. of like, if, if you don't think labor is sufficiently left-wing. So you do see an element of radicalization there. And you do see a little bit of appetite among some young people for a bit more sort of like, you know, unorthodox right-wing politics. Yeah. Um, but it's something the Tories clearly haven't capitalized on. Um, yeah. I think there's, you also can't discount the fact that the Tories are suffering from being in government for the last 14 years. Yes, whereas that's true. Uh, PVV in the Netherlands, Brothers of Italy in Italy, uh, obviously, um, they are they were opposition parties coming into power. Yeah. Um, whether they will continue to have the, that kind of young support after however many years they last in power, you know, remains to be seen. And the other thing I was going to say is that um, I think they also suffer just from the voting system. Uh, mm. In a lot of these European countries we're talking about, there's a more proportional, uh, you know, allocation of votes to seats, whereas here, yeah. first past the post, you know, if you dominate in the kind of younger demographic that doesn't necessarily translate into lots more seats because young people aren't, well, I mean, there are seats with more young people, but they're mm. not concentrated in very specific constituencies. So I think they suffer from that as well. Um, and yeah, I think if, when you break down that polling a little bit more as well, um, just to highlight how much of their own base that the Conservatives are losing, um, you can look at it based on how someone voted, how people voted in 2019 and how those parties, how much of that vote share they're maintaining. Sure. So Labour, apparently, according to this polling, are maintaining 83% of Labour voters from 2019. Um, Conservatives are only maintaining 56% of Conservative voters from 2019. Mm. That's a big cut. Um, and just to show how difficult their situation is, they're losing 15% to Labour and 21% to Reform. So this whole talk about they need to shift far right to try and pick up those Reform voters, they're at risk of losing even more Labour supporters. Yeah. 
they're losing, I mean, slightly more to reform than Labour, but broadly speaking, a pretty significant chunk on either side. So swinging wildly either way is going to damage them on whichever way they don't decide to go. Reform could end up being a pretty big player in the next election then. Like, so, I mean, they're unlikely to win many seats mm. because of the exact system you mentioned. But last time round in 2019, the Brexit party, their equivalent, what percentage of the vote do they end up with? Like low, mid, mid, honestly, mid, seven-ish? Six, honestly, seven? don't know. Um, that is a good question. They ended <laughs> up with like six, seven percent. Let me Google while yeah. I'm talking. But they're... they're um... The, the real influence they had on that election was the ability to kind of push the Conservatives in mm -hmm. a certain direction. I think that's the same role that Reform plays now. Um, but, I mean, last time round, Brexit, the Brexit Party stood down in a number of Conservative seats and Reform have said they're absolutely not going to do that, which yeah. just kind of makes things even harder for the Tories. I do that's a really interesting point you just mentioned about... Sorry, do you want to go for the... I'm still Googling. <laughs> yeah. Keep, keep going. No, as I said, I do think it's a really interesting point you just mentioned about voting system mm. so i hadn't really thought about that in that if you're sort of like disenfranchised youth you know as i, I yeah. basically imagine most of those european young voters that we're talking about are then you don't really have an outlet in mm. the uk like the labor party is your only real viable outlet, yeah. which might partly explain why they have like such a strong monopoly on it but i imagine that given that i i think if you're an, again disenfranchised youth it's a bit of a like you know it's a bit of a cheap term yeah. but you know what i mean your politics are probably actually be relatively radical. You know, I think you probably want some more serious economic reforms and you're probably further right on cultural issues than the Labour Party is. Then you might be quite disappointed when Keir Starmer gets into office. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's an outlet because you get a change of government and that's a sort of relief in a sense. But I think given that his revealed politics are pretty moderate, Starmer's revealed politics are pretty moderate, I think you might end up with quite a lot of disappointed people and quite a lot of frustrated voters. Yeah, but... I think on on kind of both ends where there'll be lots of young people, again, I don't know what the polling is, but lots of young people disappointed by how moderate he is when they wished he'd be more left-wing socially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know what the polling actually bears out on that. That's interesting because you're right. I think there is a divide on cultural issues and mm. social issues. Yeah. I think that is, especially, I think in the UK as well, the UK is actually a lot more left-wing on those issues mm. than other countries are, especially amongst young people, actually. There's quite good polling. The John Burr Murdoch piece about the gender divide that we mentioned we did a video on TLDR Global about it one of the things it shows is that in lots of countries women are getting more liberal and men are getting more conservative but in the UK what actually happens is both get more liberal but women get more liberal at a faster rate than men so it's not that you know young men in the UK get yeah. more conservative there's still a divide but it's actually there's a smaller divide than there is in other countries and men are still getting more liberal so I think on social issues you're right there's uh, there's, there's maybe like a little bit of space to disagree, but I think it's often overstated. But I do think the interesting thing is the strength of consensus amongst, uh, I think basically the whole the whole of the UK electorate on economic issues. On mm. the, like no one knows what it means, but people do want a more radical yeah. economic program. And at the moment, there just isn't really a viable option for that. Yeah, it's weird. This, these recent reports of Labour talking about trying to, uh, I think the phrase was bomb-proof their uh, their manifesto, yeah. which basically just means like making it less radical as if the less things you have in it makes it a safe manifesto when polling, like you said, suggests that people are after something, even if we don't know exactly what those policies are, they want I think that's Quite the issue. That we don't know what the policies are. There's some really yeah. interesting po polling done on millennials um, a couple of months ago, which was about how, like like everyone else, basically young people, uh, I think they didn't include Gen Z because it's just too young and I don't know when the polling was done precisely. But millennials and other young people have quite right-wing attitudes on taxes. They want lots of spending, lots of other places, but they actually have far more right-wing attitudes on taxes than previous generations. 
but presumably just because they've lived with the highest tax burden. Yeah. So they just sort of think like we can't afford it. And and I think it's Cohen... difficult for Starmer though because like the polling then tells you people want radical stuff but no more taxes. Yeah, I think that kind of coincides though people frustrated at living through a really high tax era but while public services have not been performing well at all. <laughs> you think if they're living through an era where they're paying lots of tax but public services are great, you'd assume that they would be pretty fine with, with a high tax yeah. era. But um, yeah, it does it does leave Labour in a kind of tricky position trying to trying to weave through that slightly contradictory that the view. view sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does this mean anything looking further forward, do you think? Is this a short-term shift? Or do we think this is a more systemic change when it comes to the difference between how younger people and older people are voting and also how old you have to be to vote Conservative? Is this a kind of a Rishi Sunak right now issue or is this a real issue for the Tories going to 2029, 2034? The easy questions. Look forward to 2039 and tell me how the Tories are going to be like a minute or two to think about it. Uh, The answer, by the way, the Brexit party got 2% of the vote. Oh. But they only ran in 275 okay. constituencies. Yeah. So if you multiply that out, it's closer Six-ish. to five, six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So big, so big question. Uh, <laughs> is this a structural problem for the Tories? Um, my, I think my answer is yes, it is a structural problem for the Tories. I think it's, the reason it's a problem for the Tories is I think that conservatism, small C conservatism, just like sort of like, Playing it safe, muddling mm. along, you know, best personified maybe by the sort of David Cameron vibe, yeah, <laughs> is just not appropriate for a time of crisis. Mm. And I, I basically, this is just like trivially true, you know, like in a time of crisis, muddling along is just not good enough. It's just not politically palatable. And I think that we are probably entering a time of crisis at least for like the next, who knows, a couple of years, let's say. Um, I think that's motivated by a couple of things. I think one, the, the climate, climate change, I mean, uh, people sometimes push back against this point even if you don't think climate change is going to too directly or adversely affect the uk the energy transition will the energy mm-hmm. transition is just very very difficult and probably very expensive and you see that in parts of europe um and it really brings to the fore quite difficult distributional questions um that i don't think conservatives small c conservatives are equipped to answer I think, by the way, Boris Johnson is a symptom of this. I think the success of Boris Johnson is a symptom of this. Boris Johnson was not a small-c conservative in any sense of the word. Uh, he was a constitutional radical. His, his economic policies involved quite a big state. You know, he mm-hmm. was closer to a sort of Tony Blair in that respect than he was to David Cameron. Um, and his cultural politics could be quite extreme as well. There was a sort of, some of the rhetoric was was very like libertarian in parts. Um, and he made his journalistic career officer, you know, slagging off Brussels and, you know, like the freedom of, Great Britain or whatever. Yeah. Know, I'm not going to do a Boris Johnson impression. <laughs> um, so I think that is my answer there. I think if you buy the sort of poly crisis analysis, if you think that we are living in a time of crisis, then yeah, I do think it's a structural issue for the conservatives, especially small C conservatives. Um, I think there are two caveats here. One, Tories have proven remarkably capable of rebranding. They haven't always been small C conservative. Um, Thatcher obviously wasn't small C conservative, but mm-hmm. I think there's no sort of radical right-wing economics available that's going to get us out of the poly crisis. I don't think that's like feasible. There's basically mm. nothing left to privatize. Um, and the idea that the difficult distributional questions around the energy transition and the crisis generally are going to be solved by right-wing tax like economics, I think is implausible. I just think that the energy crisis requires a bigger state requires more active redistribution to make it politically palatable. Um, but yeah, the Tories have proven 
remarkably capable of rebrand nonetheless. Boris Johnson, again, good example of that. Um, the other thing is that I think that these are still problems for Labour. You know, like there are no easy answers to like, if you again, if you accept this poly crisis or the this, this sense of crisis that is going to permeate throughout the next couple of years. Um, and so it could be one of those things where, sure, the Tories are going to struggle to sort of adapt ideologically. But again, you know, Labour are going to struggle. And I think that's very, very apparent in the way Labour positioning themselves at the moment. Like Labour clearly trying to, even if their policy, even if their sort of actual political instincts are more left wing, there's very little policy space between them, the Tories, I mean, the caveats aside, but like in terms of public spending, basically. Mm. Um, and I think that is a symptom of the fact that there are these real fiscal constraints for states that rely on international capital markets. To, this is the thing, but to, to fund their public spending and their borrowing and given those constraints, it's quite hard to respond adequately to the poly crisis and the fact that taxing more progressively is none is difficult. It might be a good idea in theory, but you know, basically tax, taxing rich corporations and rich people is, has always been difficult mm. uh, and will continue to be difficult for labor. So I just think that basically if you accept that there's a crisis, small C conservatism is insufficient, but the saving grace for the Tories is that a, they've proven very good at reforming themselves and B, I don't think labor have any easy answers to the, crisis per se either doesn't really sound like good news for anyone then no it's probably going to be tough <laughs> that's one of the reasons i uh, i think the european politicians have not been entirely honest mm. with their electorates about the fiscal constraints yeah uh, and i think that only one of the reasons i do like macron is i think at the very least you have to admit that he is one of the most honest politicians when it comes to telling his uh, telling the public look we can't afford x or we can't afford y unless yeah. you do this um and I think we haven't really had, we, you know, it's, it's been quite a long time since we've had the politics of real compromise and sacrifice. You know, I think basically there's austerity, with, there's chipping away at the edges and uh, it was a sort of like slow demolition of, mm. of like living standards, um, but really sort of hard and fast choices. It's been a while since we had that. Um, and I don't think we're like necessarily politically ready for it. Mm. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty bleak. Yeah. Second section, we've ended on bleakness. Yeah, who knows? There might be something great. Uh, that, oh, but maybe. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> no, I think, <laughs> I, I think, I think the, 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 yeah, the, the last seven grades I'll mention is that I do, I am personally optimistic that the, a, a lot of the sort of like geopolitical tensions uh, and that sort of crisis, I think that will die down. No okay. one else seems to think so. I just don't think, I think that the geopolitical competition between, oh, this is too much, between China and the US and all that sort of shenanigans will calm down. And okay. I think that'll be fundamentally good for the global economy and we might have a bit of relief there great yeah just gotta wait for america and china to calm down yeah well Easy. and then hopefully the sort of protection will die down as well okay yeah and that will help us. yeah okay. minutes away yeah yeah <laughs>
the government in Northern Ireland. Okay. You can't completely attribute it to him and his government, but obviously there's been a lot of people working for the last two years trying to re-establish power sharing. Um, and, you know, the fact it has been re-established after new, a new deal between the government and the DUP is yeah. a good sign for him. Sunak's gone over to Northern Ireland for a little victory lap. Um, gives him a bit of breathing room after after a pretty difficult, well, difficult year and a bit of however long he's been he's in been office. He's been on the board for a while. So, um, yeah, I think it's 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 good for him. Basically. It's a win for sure. Yeah, Politically, though, it's given me Windsor Framework vibes in that I don't think he's got enough credit for it. Mm. In part because no one cares about Northern Ireland. <laughs> it's just, just sad, isn't it? Well, yeah. I think he, like, he should be getting more credit for that. It's quite an impressive achievement, actually. Um, but he's not going to. That's the most credit he's going to get. Yeah. <laughs> Moving from I'm absolutely not... abysmal to just bad on our leaderboard. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you're watching. Um, um, Zach, who's your winner of the week? My winner of the week is Donald Trump. Oh, okay. It's mainly because Biden is struggling. Biden cannot get out of the quagmire in the Middle East at the moment. And the fact that we've had a whole load of strikes on Iranian-backed militias and targets mm-hmm. in Iraq and Syria mainly is just not doesn't bode well for sort of like the risks of escalation. And I think Blinken has said today that there will be more strikes, which yeah. I don't think to mm-hmm. well. Uh, and I think, yeah, it, this constant escalation in the Middle East is not good. Obviously not good in its own terms, but mm. also not good domestically for Biden. It's bad for Biden. Has Trump been saying anything about it that we're aware of? I think he basically says if it was me, it wouldn't happen. Love it. He's got, he's got a point. He's got a point. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't have happened. It, it, you can't prove it would have done. Just, How are you yeah, going to prove it? <laughs> it's just, other things worth saying is that like basically every successful primary presidential candidate has run on an anti-war platform in America mm. for like the past like four elections. And so the fact that Trump will get to run on a sort of like look at Biden, he takes us into forever wars again. Yeah. Just there were a, no wars when I was in power. Yeah. It's good for him. It's really good for him. Not not fully true, but it's, it's true no, enough. No, yeah. People say it. Yeah. yeah. People <laughs> say it. They do um, say it. Rory. Conversely, who is your loser of the week? Um, my loser of the week is Gert Wilders. Oh. Um, I think he moved down for a similar reason maybe last week or two weeks ago, so I hope I'm not doubling okay. up on this. But basically, Dutch government formation talks are still not going well for him. I think the last time he went down, it's because of this dispute over migration laws. But now there's been some more stuff. Um, primarily the uh, new social contract, which is one of the main parties within the formation negotiations, there's reports that they're having serious doubts about it because of Gert Wilders' party's view on things like freedom, mm. uh, fundamental freedoms and, and um, rule of law stuff. And they're a bit more uh, hesitant to, to launch, kind of jump into government with, with Gert Wilders. And also another party, which is the BBB, I'm not going to say their Dutch name, but it's the Farm Bo- Citizen... Bo- something like that. <laughs> Farm, Citizen, yeah. <laughs> Farm Citizen Movement. Um, there's been these big farmer protests across Europe and one of the protest leaders vaguely threatened or kind of implied a threat against uh, an MP in that new social contract party. And the leader of the BBB, the Farmers Party, effectively ref- <laughs> uh, effectively refused to condemn this veiled threat, which has put these two parties inside the negotiations yeah. at odds with each other on yet another thing. So, yeah, it's looking even more difficult than it already was. Mm. I think the, the politician who's kind of in charge of... of bringing these parties together and navigating the negotiation is, is going to issue a report next week or this week. I can't remember. Okay. Kind of like a status update. So we'll see what that says. Okay. But, um, yeah. I'm moving Gert Wilders down. Seems fair. Do you know where the VVD are at the moment? Not really. Um, I th- that was a bit of a falling out, but I don't think they've said anything since. Yeah. I think uh, I haven't seen much about them in relation to it, but maybe, maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. To be fair. 
Uh, Zach, who is your loser of the week? Uh, it's a bit lazy for me because we did a video over this on TLDR Global, but my loser is Turkish President Erdogan. Ah. Uh, and it's partly because of the ongoing economic crisis, um, but also because he just, just lost his central bank governor. Uh, she cited personal reasons, and that is almost definitely true. There's been this sort of ongoing scandal about whether or not I think she appointed her father to a job in the central bank, um, and Turkish media has been all over her for it. But the fact that he has lost another central bank governor in, God knows how long, I think it's the fifth in five years, or something like that, uh, just really doesn't bode well. And it won't inspire international confidence in the Turkish economy, which is it's, well, it's very much needed if it wants to escape autarky. Um, but yeah, so that's my that's my one. Okay. Yeah. The board has really changed today and in the last few days. There's a real... Sorry. There was a the top of the board the which had a lot really of people, changed. but it's really yeah. shifted. Mm. We've got a lot of people who have shifted down from actively good spots to kind of middle good. If anything, like the top of the board looks very empty, and there's a lot of bad people too. Like bad is very just, bad. It's funny just seeing Rory like staring blankly at despair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I'm on the camera. Gay, I'm looking straight at um, Mohammed bin Salman right now. I think. Oh. Yeah. Um, well, that's how the leaderboard shakes out today. As always, we're curious, who would you move? Who would you add to the board? Where would you put them? We are committing there'll be two new entrants into the board on Wednesday. Thursday, sorry. We record on Wednesday, released on Thursday. Thursday's episode, there'll be two brand new people. So stay tuned. Yeah. New entrants on the board, wow. exclusively on the TLDR podcast. So exciting. Who could they be? <laughs> Place your yeah. bets now.